0: Chapter 34 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Grand Old Man. It is well understood that Mr. Gladstone, on his retirement from public life, received from the sovereign the offer of an earldom, with, of course, a seat in the House of Lords mr gladstone gratefully and gracefully declined the title and the position no one could have been surprised at his decision he had already made a name which no earldom or dukedom or any other rank could have enhanced posterity says lord macaulay has obstinately refused to degrade francis bacon into viscount st albans in the same sense, the contemporaries and the posterity of William Ewart Gladstone would have declined to accept for him the title of Earl of Howarden or Earl of any other place. He is fixed in the affection and the admiration of his countrymen as William Ewart Gladstone. One title he has indeed received by the universal accord of the public of England and the public of all the world. I do not know, and I suppose nobody knows, who invented this title for him, but it was conferred upon him, and it will always remain with him and with his memory. He was called the Grand Old Man, and the Grand Old Man he always will remain. Never was there a character which more aptly deserved that title, sacred to age and to grandeur, of genius, of purpose, and of career. I do not know whether English parliamentary history records greater doings of any man. In different paths of political work other men may have been as great as he. So far as one can judge by the writings of contemporaries, there may have been orators and debaters in Parliament who were equal to him. Probably Fox was his equal in parliamentary debate. There is a magnificent phrase of Henry Grattan's, himself hardly surpassed as a parliamentary order, in which he describes the eloquence of Fox as rolling in, resistless, as the waves of the Atlantic. I have often thought of that description when listening to some of Mr. Gladstone's greatest speeches. I have said to myself, this makes me understand the force and the meaning of Grattan's superb phrase. This is indeed eloquence, rolling in resistless as the waves of the atlantic the elder pitt was probably as great an orator as mr gladstone the younger pitt was probably his equal in the statelier forms of declamation but not fox nor chatham nor william pitt had anything like mr gladstone's capacity for constructive legislation and the resources of information possessed by fox or chatham or pitt were poor indeed when compared with that storehouse of knowledge which supplied Mr. Gladstone's intellectual capacity. Mr. Gladstone was possessed through his life with an eager passion to do the right thing at all times. Sometimes, no doubt, he took a wrong view of things, but never was swayed by any but the most rightful motives. No human interest was indifferent to him, and the smallest wrong as well as the greatest, aroused his most impassioned sympathy and made him resolve that the wrong should be righted. I have mixed with most of Mr. Gladstone's contemporaries, his political opponents as well as his political followers, and I have never heard a hint of any serious defect in his nature and his character or of any unworthy motive influencing his public or private career. Defects of temperament, of manner, and of tact have no doubt been ascribed to him over and over again. He was not, people tell me, always successful in conciliating or playing up to the weaknesses of inferior men. He was not good, I am told, at remembering faces and names. In this peculiarity he was unlike what we all used to believe of the great Napoleon, who never, it once was the common belief, forgot a face or a name later historians however have corrected public opinion a good deal on this subject and we now know that the great napoleon was very carefully coached both as regards faces and names and made many fine theatrical effects on the strength of some quietly administered hint such defects however in mr gladstone's nature or temperament count indeed for little or nothing in the survey of his career, he was loved by his friends. He cannot but be honored even by his political enemies, for personal enemies he never could have had. The name conferred on him by nobody knows whom will be borne by him to all time, and so long as the history of Queen Victoria's reign remains in the memory of civilization, he will still be the grand old man the year now drawing to a close was made memorable to england and indeed to all the civilized world by the celebration of what was called the diamond jubilee of queen victoria's reign the sixtieth year of her sovereignty every civilized state took some share in the tribute of regard thus paid to the queen even the nationalists of ireland who felt bound to take no part in the demonstrations abstained for purely political reasons and had no thought of disrespect for the ruler whom i have already described as the first and only constitutional sovereign of great britain the queen was seventy-eight during the year of the diamond jubilee and was therefore some ten years younger than mr gladstone or pope leo the thirteenth Mr. Gladstone's health did not allow him to take any conspicuous part in the jubilee celebration, but we may be sure that no heart beat more fervently than his for the queen, and for her happiness, and that of her family, and for the glory of the reign, which he himself had done so much to make illustrious and successful. End of chapter 34 Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, December 2016. End of The Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy.